This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. We all look forward to reaching our final destination, to being one with God in the new heaven and in the new earth, to being able to sit at the feet of our Lord and worship Him forever and ever. And all these glorious things are preceded by either death or Jesus' second coming. In today's church, there are a few things that hold as much allure about than the predictions and the various theories about the end times and Jesus' return. This is a theological field known as eschatology. As curious creatures, we try to puzzle through this divine mystery, uh, one that God saw fit to keep shrouded much in shadow. Understanding Jesus' return is vitally important to achieving closeness with God. One of the main reasons is without an end, life has no meaning. But we must also be careful with a subject this important. Getting our interpretations incorrect could have disastrous effects on our relationship with God. Easily the most prominent source that shapes the field of eschatology is John's Revelation. The Revelation is a unique set of books known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature, primarily of the Hebrew extraction, is very foreign to us as modern readers. Tonight I will show you that Revelation's goal is not, the main goal is not to give us a convoluted and mathematical code as to when Jesus will return in the 21st century, but to give us hope that the reward is far greater than any tribulation that this church will ever go through. It is also... A most, the most complete picture of Jesus, drawing exhaustively from the Old Testament and using that magnificent prose in the teaching to, and infusing it in the teaching and imagery of the New Testament. To start, I'll give context to St. John's Revelation, and after that I'll dive into the Revelation and dissect it portion by portion. So let's start with this context. St. John wrote from Patmos, which is a small island in the Icarian Sea near modern-day Turkey. Revelation, the word, is translated from the Greek apokalypsis, which is why many people prefer the alternative title of the book, the Apocalypse. Both titles give gravity and genre to this book. And one of the keys to understanding the Apocalypse is its source material, the Old Testament. Of the 404 verses in this book, 278 allude to the Old Testament. This is what makes it so confusing to the modern reader. The first century reader, where he wrote it, was very familiar with this genre of apocalyptic literature, but we have grown very distant from it as uh, Gentiles. This genre uses symbolic visions and numbers to distill God's perspective on history in its context based in the ultimate end. Many of the prophets used it, and to some extent, while others like Ezekiel and Daniel used it a great deal. John harkened back to them using the grand images of plagues and judgments from, taken from Israel's history to show that the church was going to endure great sorrow in its future. 
He was not creating, as I said, an elaborate code to describe how the world was going to end, but he was simply pointing his readers back to the Old Testament and those judgments therein. While we are discussing the genre of apocalypse, we must remember that this is a letter to specific churches. Jesus himself said that these are meant for the seven churches in modern-day Turkey in Revelation 22.16, saying, I, Jesus... I've sent mine angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Since this is a letter, we must anchor our understanding of it in this historical context. Understanding the times and the struggles these churches will go, were going through will give us the most full view of this book. The apocalypse is the most complete grafting of, the Jesus, into, of Jesus into the Old Testament. John often uses the imagery of a strong and mighty warrior Messiah, but then shows that Jesus was the fulfillment of that through the, being the slain lamb. He proves that Jesus is the conqueror not by killing his enemies, but by flipping the script and dying for them instead, shedding his innocent blood and redeeming the unredeemable. Let's continue to the first portion of the apocalypse, the opening and the letter to the seven churches. John opens this book with the standard salutes and immediately sets this book as one of prophecy or God's word through the mouth of a man, usually to warn his people or to comfort them during times of crisis. John was visited by Jesus in all of his heavenly splendor. Jesus was arrayed so beautifully and brilliantly that St. John fell at his feet as of dead. Jesus placed his hand on him and comforts him. Saying, this is taken from chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. Fear not, I am the first, I am the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And have the keys of heaven, hell, and death. John told us to, was told to write what he saw and to send it out to the seven churches. Now, as we read this book, you'll find that sevens are extensively used. This is based off the seven-day cycle God used to create this earth, and that gives the spiritual significance of completeness to the number seven. The first cycle of seven we encounter is, of course, the seven churches and the messages Jesus gives John. The seven churches were ones at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. Jesus speaks to the churches, always reminding them them that I know thy works in his words. He gives them encouragement and admonishment both, acknowledging what they've done right, but also disabusing them of their heresies and bringing to light their shortcomings. He never hid the hardships of following him, but he always imparted hope. As in chapter 2 verse 7, he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This portion directly ties into the final chapters of Revelation, creating the main conflict of the book, as in, will Christ's bride endure? Will it remain faithful to Jesus until he returns? But it has much to endure, as we will see. Let's move on to the throne of God. This is found in chapters 4 and 5 of the book. Here John is swept up into heaven and brought directly into the throne room of God. The throne is a picture of power and splendor and beauty all at once. God is surrounded by 24 elders and four fantastic beasts who whole, whose whole purpose is to just praise him without ceasing. 
The beasts proclaim in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 8, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The Revelation 5 opens up with introducing a scroll in the right hand of God, sealed with seven seals. John weeps when he hears that no one on earth can open it because he understands the cosmic significance of it. But one of the elder comforts him in chapter 5, verse 5, saying, Weep not, behold, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. St. John hears this strong Old Testament imagery of the warrior Messiah, pulled straight from Genesis 49.9 and Isaiah 11.1. But as he looks, he sees the fulfillment of that in the slain lamb of God. After the lamb takes the book, the elders fall down and worship, affirming his worthiness. The end of the chapter sees every creature in heaven and in earth praising the lamb, the Holy Spirit, and God as equals. This ushers in the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven judgments. Let's move on to the seven seals found in chapter 8 through the first half of chapter 6 or the first half of chapter 8. Before we dive into the seals themselves, I want to put to rest a major contention. Are these seals a time-bound literal sequence? The most popular belief today was heralded by the Left Behind series, namely a very uber-literal sequential events that will happen most likely in the 21st century. But notice that these sevens are concentric with the next phase coming from the preceding, ending with a spectacular final judgment that concludes each in a congruent fashion. It would be more logical that these were just different points of the same events from different points of view, that being the era between Jesus' resurrection and his return. Instead of a future sequential chain. So, with that out of the way, let's look at the seals themselves. The first four seals introduce the infamous four horsemen. The conqueror, war, famine, and death. They are inspired by Zechariah 1. Which, in Zechariah 1 verse 8, says, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him were the red horses speckled in white. And these God had given power to roam and judge the earth. The four horsemen are not riddle, literal men, just physical representations of the sorrows and the tragedies that have beset men since the fall. The fifth seal describes the righteous indignation of the Christian martyrs. This is not only a display of God's divine justice, but it's also of his divine patience. The martyrs cry, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? This is taken from verse 10. As their cries rise to his ears, he gives them white robes and says that they might rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. It's from verse 11. Seal 6 is taken from Isaiah 2 and Joel 2 is the portended day of the Lord. As the earth quakes and the sun is dark and the humans run and hide, begging the earth to hide them and crying out, for the great day of his wrath has come, who shall be able to stand? This is where John takes a thematically interesting turn. He pauses the narrative stream to answer that cry with a sort of an intermission. Chapter 7 begins with the sealing of the 144,000. This draws a parallel with the military census in Numbers 1, each man's soldiers in the Messiah's army. 
But as John turns, he beholds the fulfillment of the prophecy in the army of the slain lamb with an image of multitude from every nation and every tongue and every people. This is the multitude of the redeemed that stood through the tribulation and was rewarded with paradise. The final seal initiates the seven trumpets, but before they are blown, an angel fills a golden censure with the prayers of the saints that he offers upon the altar. The angel took the fire from the altar and threw it to the earth, bringing finality to the day of the Lord and making good on God's promise to avenge the martyrs. Thus ends the seals and begins the trumpets. The seven trumpets are found in the half, latter half of chapter 8 through chapter 11. The first five of these trumpets retell the same judgments through the lens of Exodus. It mentions hail, blood, and poison in the water, the smiting of the sun, the bringing of darkness on the earth, and demonic locusts. John pauses to foreshadow in chapter 9, verse 12, which says, One woe is past, and behold, there comes two more woes hereafter. The sixth trumpet circles back to release the four horsemen bound in the Euphrates, released with a great army referenced from Zechariah to kill men. In verses 20 through 21 of chapter 9, we see how hard the hearts of men truly are. And the rest of the men who are not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of their works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. This reminds us of Pharaoh, who himself, after going through such judgments, hardened his heart as well against God and went on to destroy himself and his army. John pauses for a second intermission in chapter 10. A mighty angel sets his feet, one in the earth and one in the sea, and reads from a little book in verse, from verse 2 of chapter 10. This is most likely the unsealed scroll of the Lamb. St. John sets to write what the angel utters, but he is forbidden by a voice in heaven. The angel then lifts up his hand and swore by him that liveth forever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein. That time was to be abolished. St. John then says in the next verse, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. John is then told to retrieve the book and eat it, just like in Ezekiel chapter 2 through 3. The same descriptors are used for both books, namely that they're written on both sides and both are sweet to the mouth when eaten, with the addition in John's case that the book was bitter in his stomach. John is then told to prophesy the book's contents, just like Ezekiel. Following, John sees two visions, each symbolic in nature. He is given a reed to measure the temple. In the tradition of the New Testament writers who use the symbol of the new temple as the church, you could deduce that this was talking about the church, and when John uh, was talking about the tr outer courts being trampled, he was portending the upcoming persecution the church was to endure. He then describes two witnesses. Many believe that these two witnesses were literal men, but they are described as lampstands which earlier in the book stood for churches. 
So it would make more sense that the two witnesses were a representation of the church's prophetic role in bringing the nations to Christ. A beast pulled from Daniel 7 rises to conquer and kill these witnesses, but God raises them from the dead, vindicating them, and in so doing, bringing many to the church. Here John returns to the seventh trumpet announcing God's sovereignty, ushering in the final day of judgment, summing it up in chapter 11, verse 18, which says, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and in the time of the dead that they should be judged, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy those that destroy the earth. Revelation ends with an opening of the heavenly temple, with the imagery and the power much like found in 1 Kings. As we end the seventh trumpet, we need to be reminded that it was not the judgments that brought the nations to God. It was the church giving its life and emulating the Savior in this ultimate sacrifice and ultimate love. Promises of judgment and hellfire do not bring people to Christ. What brings people to Christ is when we copy his perfect love and show his mercy to the host and to the lost and hate-filled nations of unbelievers. Let's continue to the next section. The signs or symbols. This is found in chapters 12 through 14 of Revelation. John takes a break from his concentric circles of judgment in chapter 12 to give a vision of the allegorical retelling of history. With imagery like the dragon to symbolize Satan, and the woman and with child to symbolize Israel and the Messiah. The dragon lays in wait to destroy the woman's offspring, but the man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, from verse 4 of chapter 12, is the Messiah, who is swept up into heaven through his death and resurrection, and placed on his throne, defeating the dragon once and for all. John gives us a view of the heavenly conflict in verses 7 through 8, which says, And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought his angels and prevailed not. Neither was there a place found any more in heaven. God was not threatened by Satan's thirst for power. He was not threatened enough to not even go himself. He sent Michael to defeat Satan and cast him from heaven. After Satan was expunged from heaven, a loud voice declares the victory in verses 10 through 12, which says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they've overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he has but a short time. At this point in history, Satan knows he is defeated. He knows that his time is running short. But we must also remember not just who we are, but whose we are. Even though the dragon is making war with a remnant, like it says in verse 17, he is fighting from defeat. We cannot give him undue power over us. We are children of the one true king and of the Savior, covered by the blood of the slain lamb who still lives. The only power Satan has is the power we give him in our doubt. In chapter 13, we get this image of a beast 
rising from the sea. And it parallels Daniel 7 again. But St. John's readers understood this to be a representation of Rome. Like it says in verse 1, Rome sits on seven hills. And later in chapter 17, 12, it explains that the ten horns that adorn the beast are kings. Meaning them emperors of Rome. At this time in church history, in the late AD 50s and early 60s, while the church is being persecuted, persecuted extensively, it, they didn't have the top-down government-sponsored persecution that Nero was about to usher in. St. John was warning the church that the greatest source of persecution to come was coming from the hands of the Roman government. Verse 3 could possibly be the year, or prophesying the year of the four emperors in A.D. 68. After Nero committed suicide, the Roman system was shaken to its core, devolving into civil war, which would be the beast's deadly wound. For a year, four separate Romans laid claim to the throne, each fighting to gain a foothold. One of the contenders, a general Vespian, came and restored peace. Defeating the others, healing the wound of the head. This would have returned the old strength to the Roman international power. Bringing back the imperial worship cult that Nero was famous for. And causing the whole world to worship Rome's power. And by proxy, Satan's. The 42 months in verse 5 references Nero's reign. Who had not yet begun his systemic persecution of Christians. Nero began his persecution near the end of his reign after he blamed Christians for the week-long fire of Rome in A.D. 64. From the time the persecution started to the end of Nero's reign was approximately four years, 48 months, give or take a couple. St. John wasn't just in a blanket fashion calling the Roman Empire evil. He was reminding his readers that Satan works behind the scenes using those that pledge allegiance to him to persecute the church. This made it more of a spiritual battle as well as a physical one. Satan was assisting the Romans, and he was, this was his way to wage his war against the bride, making sure all those who wouldn't fall down and worship Rome or the emperors to die. Revelation 13 ends with the infamous mark of the beast. Read verse 18 with me. Here is wisdom, it says. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore, and six. St. John clearly had a person in mind when he wrote this, and he assumed that him that hath understanding could figure this out as well. In Hebrew, each letter is assigned a number. Using this method called geometria, we can find the word associated with 666 is a Hebrew transliteration from the Greek Nero Caesar, further cementing that this portion is a warning to the church of Nero's forthcoming persecutions. Chapter 14 opens with a description of the Lamb's holy army, those who have written the Father's name on their forehead, which signifies absolute allegiance. Here they sing a new psalm, one of ultimate victory, and the only ones that know the words of the psalm are the redeemed, of God in heaven. Next, John brings messages from three angels. The first angel shares the everlasting gospel, beseeching all to come and fear God, since his time of judgment is at hand. The second angel condemns Babylon, which is a style, which is a symbol of the Rome style decadence and sin that seduces us away from God. 
He's followed by a third angel, which describes the judgment of those that fall for Babylon's revelries. He describes it in verse 10 through 11 as, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. He then finishes with saying that the saints derive their patience from this promise that their persecutors will see and get their due before God and the Lamb. The second part of chapter 14 is a continuation of the description of the wrath of God. Jesus reaches down into earth and casts those who had the mark of the beast into the winepress of the wrath of God. Let's continue on to the seven bowls, which is found in chapter 15 and 16. In the 15th chapter, we see those who have overcome Nero's persecution, worshiping God by the side of a sea of glass mingled with fire, each dressed in white and having a harp of God. They sing the song of Moses found in Exodus 15, singing how great and marvelous and powerful God is. The song ends with verse 4 of chapter 15 of Revelation saying, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. After this, seven angels bring the final seven bowls out of the temple, filled with glory, again described with much of the same imagery found in 1 Kings 10 through 11. In chapter 16, the final set of the seven plagues are described. Here, as with other times of these parallel judgments, John stresses that these judgments do not bring repentance. Only more blasphemy. In verses 13 through 16 of this chapter, it goes on to describe the Battle of Armageddon, which is a metaphor for the rebellious nation's final struggle with the church and against a slain lamb and his people. In verses 17 17 through 21, the final description of the day of of the Lord is given to us. It uses the same scenes of the earth falling apart and calamity taking over the globe. God's final judgment reaches the people. Let's move on to the end of the earth in chapter 17 through 20. Beginning in chapter 17, St. John goes into greater depth about the end of the earth. He uses Babylon as a symbol of not just Rome, but of all the Christ and God-hating nations that went before it and will follow it. In talking about this beast that carried the harlot, St. John says in verses 9 through 10, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. Five has fallen, one is, and and the other is not yet to come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. This again is talking of Rome, which sits on seven hills, and of the emperor Nero, who was the sixth emperor of Rome. St. John warns that fallen the Caesars like Nero will give their power and allegiance to the beast. And verse 14 gives us hope, saying, These that shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. 
Chapter 18 is an Old Testament-esque description of the fall and judgment of the rebellious city, again using Babylon. It says the earth will mourn the loss of its center of evil and fornication, but God will repay her justly for her actions since she was found in the blood of the prophets and of the saints. Chapter 19 describes the beginning of paradise for those who have remained faithful throughout all of these tribulations and the seduction of Babylon and the trauma of her persecution. They praise God for his just punishment, saying in verses 6 through 8, And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude, and a voice of many waters, and as a voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, and for the linen and the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. After this is the long-awaited marriage supper of the Lamb, where his bride, the church, is finally united with him in paradise everlasting. St. John continues to meld this image of both the Old Testament warrior Messiah and the New Testament fulfillment, the slain lamb. He describes it best in verses 11 through 18. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and in his head were many crowns, and he had his name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood. And his name was called the Word of God. And his um, clothing dipped in blood, of course, was a reference to his sacrifice as the slain lamb. This is followed by a retelling of Armageddon where, by the sword of his mouth, Christ defeats the beast and all its adversaries and casts them into their due punishment. In chapter 20, we hear of the thousand-year reign which symbolizes the time of Jesus' victory of the cross from then into the time of his return. The two final battles that juxtapose those are the aforementioned Armageddon and the day of the Lord from two different viewpoints. After the final defeat comes the final judgment where God sits on his glorious throne and gives each their just reward. Everyone, dead or alive, will stand before God's throne and bow before him as he enacts his divine justice. For the serpent and all those who pledge allegiance to him, justice is getting what they always sought, ultimate separation from God. That is the greatest punishment anyone, angel or man, could ever be given. It is a happy day, though, for those who are found written in the book of life, as we shall see. Finally, the just reward of the saints, found in chapters 21 and 22 of the Revelation. This entire book culminates into these two chapters. The most complete description of the paradise waiting for the faithful is found here. Verses 3 through 7 elicit hope enough to persevere through any trial. They say, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. 
I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. St. John describes the new Jerusalem, a perfect meld of the Old and New Testament imagery. That of having 12 gates, each with one of the tribes of Israel written over top of them. And having 12 foundations, each with the name of an apostle. In verses 20 through to. Through 23, he says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is light thereof. These descriptions of unfathomable beauty and glory continue into chapter 22. In verses 1 through 5, he describes the perfection of the new world. It says, And he showed me a pure river of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord of God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Reading this causes a yearning like no other, because this is our true home. God created the world we're in, and it is beautiful, but it is fallen. And so the new heaven and the new earth described in these passages will always be our true home. Where we can worship and see the face of our God forever and ever. John closes the apocalypse with standard exhortations, with Jesus telling him to freely share this with the seven churches. John ends with two verses I found so beautiful and so filled with hope. Verses 20 through 21, the last verses of the living word of God say, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Our individual eschatological views are vital to how we live our lives. But trying to decipher when Jesus is returning with any specificity is missing the point entirely. When Jesus himself talked about his second coming, he portrayed it with suddenness and unpredictability. Like in Matthew 24, 27, which says, For as the light cometh out of the east... And shineth even to the west, so shall the coming of the man be, Son of Man be. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 5 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. But Jesus also comforts us. Earlier in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14, which says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceives you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For the nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my sake. And many shall be offended, and hate each other, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. 
But he that endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. There is always hope. We must suffer through this turmoil. But after we have suffered, and after the entire world has seen our witness, and has been pointed to our holy and righteous Father, the Lamb who was slain, and the Holy Spirit, then and only then will He come, with a flash of lightning and the sound of thunder and of trumpets, sweeping us up to be with Him forever and ever. This is the good news and the everlasting hope for the desperately wicked mankind. This is all we need to know about the end times. Now this hope and joy can only be shared and held by God's children, those covered by the blood of this slain lamb. If you're not part of this holy fellowship, you too can join. This is the only place where you can find true hope and spiritual safety as the world burns. 2,000 years ago, Christ suffered and died with you in mind. He was scourged and he was nailed to a cross for you and for me. If you're not a part of this sainthood, if you are a part of the sainthood and you feel the unknown and the uncertainty choking away your hope, or if you have put a block between you and God, we are here to help you. We are all weary travelers struggling towards this beautiful end described in Revelation. We are here to assist you towards this wonderful goal. If you need to be baptized or you need our prayers, come forward as we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.